0: Hello everyone, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot. I am going to read to you a passage from the excellent book, The Gogo Years by John Brooks. The Go-Go Years was a period in the 1960s where people got really excited about stocks. And in order to run up the value of the stocks, the companies and the promoters played all sorts of games. The craziness reached its peak in the late 60s. Okay, here's a passage from the book. In each case, huge, shaky financial pyramids built on a minimum of cash base had been erected by financiers eager to take maximum advantage of the public's insatiable appetite for common stocks. Before 1929, they had been called investment trusts and holding companies. Now they were called conglomerates. One of my favorite quotes is, History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. In the 1920s, the many promoters used investment trusts and holding companies. In the 1960s, the promoters used conglomerates and dubious accounting to create an illusion of growth. In the 1980s, the promoters used junk bonds to do leverage buyouts. And in 2020 till 2022, the promoters were forming SPACs and taking it public. You can see how these things rhyme. The names and labels may change but the underlying behaviors and outcomes do not. The things to watch out for are excessive leverage, overpromotion, dubious accounting, and a chain-letter aspect of the model. In today's episode, I want to talk to you about reverse leverage. This is something I have been thinking about for a while. I will be sharing with you two examples to illustrate how leverage works in reverse. So let's get started with our first example. Our first example takes us back in time to the roaring 20s. In the 1920s, investors and speculators who entered the market were getting rich. The mood on Wall Street was of hope, credulity, and carefree optimism. In order to capture the public's appetite for common stocks, a vehicle called the Investment Trust was created. In the excellent book The Great Crash of 1929, John Kenneth Galbraith writes, The investment trust did not promote new enterprises or enlarge old ones. A typical trust held securities in from 500 to 1000 operating companies. As a result, the man with a few pounds, or even a few hundred, was able to spread his risk far more widely than were he himself to invest. In December 1928, Goldman Sachs decided that they wanted to get in on the action, so they launched their own investment trust. They called their investment trust the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation. Then in July 1929, the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation sponsored another investment trust called Shenandoah. And then just 25 days later, Shenandoah sponsored another investment trust called the Blue Ridge Corporation. There are two qualities that made these investment trusts extremely speculative and risky. First, they used a lot of leverage, and second, the investment trusts were pyramided, meaning that they held shares in other investment trusts and in each other. So when the market crashed in October 1929, the investment trust went into reverse leverage. John Kenneth Galbraith writes, People now found that their investment trust securities could not be sold for any appreciable sum and perhaps not at all they were forced, as a result, to rely on their good securities. Standard stocks like steel, General Motors, and Tell & Tell were thus dumped on the market in abnormal volume. With With the effect on prices that had already been fully revealed, the great investment trust boom had ended in a unique manifestation of Gresham's law in which the bad stocks were driving out the good. Then he goes on to write, The investment trust had fully... Sorry, the investment trust had invested heavily in each other. As a result, the fall in Blue Ridge hit Shenandoah, and the resulting collapse in Shenandoah was even more horrible for the Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation. End of quote. To highlight the damage done, the stock of Shenandoah was issued at $17.50 and reached a high of 36. But by 1932, it was changing hands at 50 cents down 99% from its peak. Yikes. And that's the end of our first story. Our second example is about commercial real estate. I recently read a really good article in the New York Magazine. The article is called New Glut City. It talks about the challenges that commercial real estate landlords are facing in New York City. I want to read a passage from the article to you because it highlights how reverse leverage works in real estate. Feel free to write some numbers down as I'm speaking. Let's say you bought a million square foot office for $1 billion in 2015. You took on $600 million in debt at a low fixed rate, and now your loan term is up and you have to refinance. The present value of your building is in the eye of your lender. In 2023, it does an appraisal and decides it is now worth only $700 million. But commercial mortgages are usually interest-only loans, so you still owe that $600 million you borrowed. The decline in value comes out of your equity. You have just lost $300 million. And because your bank needs to maintain its loan-to-value ratio, when you refinance, you will get a smaller loan at a higher rate and you will have to sink more money into the building to shore up your equity if you decide to keep it. There are so many examples of real estate companies undone by leverage. For example, Web and Knapp, Olympia and York, and WeWork are a few names that come to mind. Let me know if you want me to do a dedicated episode on this. In a 2009 memo to clients, Howard Marks of Oaktree wrote something that is still relevant today. He writes, investors became increasingly able to buy investment products with leverage inside, that is, to participate in leverage strategies rather than to borrow explicitly to make investments. What Howard Marks means is that today, an investor who would never buy stocks on margin have an unlimited, unlimited choice on investment products that have leverage built into them. For example, private equity hedge funds, and levered ETFs. The reason a levered long ETF can go to zero while a simple index fund can't is because of leverage. Leverage has a multiplicative effect. A useful mental model is to equate excessive leverage with multiplying by zero, and when you multiply any string of numbers by a single zero at the end, the result is a zero. I hope you have a greater appreciation of the dangers of leverage and how dangerous it can be in reverse. Watch out for leverage in the capital structure of the businesses you own. Watch out for leverage in other asset classes such as real estate, private equity, and ETFs. And remember what Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Thank you so much for listening. That's all for today. Until next time.